Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist bonus podcast. It's a rare opportunity to have a man of such esteem, an Old Testament scholar with us, Dr. John Walton, who has his PhD and also now teaches at Wheaton, Wheaton College, right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Walton? I think that uh, we need for our lay audience to understand how should we interpret the Old Testament, John? we got to transport ourselves back into that time frame and try and understand it as it was intended. So how do we go about doing that? Well, it's, it's tough. Uh, I refer to the idea of a cultural river. Okay. We have our own modern cultural river, all the things that we're familiar with in, in our ways of thinking, uh, economics, so capitalism, market economy, things like that, um, religion and how to think about religious ideas, uh, politics, mm -hmm. uh, science, values, you know, tolerance and diversity. And um, we have social networks and all of this is our mm -hmm. cultural river. Mm -hmm. And we who live in the cultural river like some of it, we dislike some of it, but we can't do anything about it. It is what it is. And all of our conversations take place in this cultural river. Mm -hmm. Well, the people writing the Bible didn't know our cultural river. And too often today, when we read the Bible, we act as if somehow the Bible is addressing our cultural river. Mm. And so we read it within our cultural river. And maybe we don't look for verses on social networking in Proverbs, but sometimes we certainly look for modern science in Genesis. Yes. And so the idea that we want to read it in our cultural river. One of the things I say probably too often is that the Bible is written for us, but not to us. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to understand it, we need to try to push aside the currents in our cultural river and try to understand their cultural river. So there's those two steps. One, recognizing the things that are part of our cultural river and pushing them aside. We can't get rid of them. We think mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But then also to try to engage their cultural river so we can read the text and hear the text, receive the text, as those original audiences and authors would have given it. What are some of the big truths we ought to know about the culture of ancient Israel when, say, Genesis 1 was written? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, one thing is that they didn't care a lot about the material world. They're aware of it, of course. They mm -hmm. could stub their toe on a rock and bump into a tree just mm -hmm. like we can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're aware of it, but that doesn't frame the way they think about the world around them and about creation. Mm. They tended to think in terms of order instead of material. Mm. And that makes a big difference because I contend that the text in Genesis is all about God establishing order rather than about God making things. Was that a response to the, say, Egyptian creation story where they were trying to bring order to chaos? Was that, was that, mm -hmm. was that the, the ancient Near East mindset, it is. John? It is the ancient Near Eastern mindset, and it's one that Israelites shared. 
Okay. They didn't step out of that and say, oh, we're going to start thinking about science and materiality. Right, right. right. Uh, so it's something, it's part of their cultural river that you think of the world around you in terms of order. Order was probably the highest value in the ancient world. And so it's reflected when they think about creation. So how is the creation story of the Bible different from, say, the creation story of Egypt or an Egyptian creation sure. story? Well, one thing is that the God's different mm -hmm. and that one God is responsible for all of it. But also, I think the difference is that when you talk about order, you have to ask, to what end is the God ordering the mm. world? Mm. And for Egyptians, it's one thing. And for Israelites, it's something totally different. In Genesis, God is ordering the world for uh, people to live in it, but also for him to live with the people he has created. Mm -hmm. And so you get the idea that there's something more going on here mm -hmm. than just God's creating order. The order that God's created in Egypt or Mesopotamia was uh, a secondary thought. That is, the gods were fine doing their own thing, being gods and living among themselves. But in the ancient world, they believed that the gods had needs. And needs? Needs. Oh, needs. So yeah. like needs. No. <laughs> and they, they're always kneeling. They, okay, need, needs. they needed food. They needed right. housing, uh -huh. clothing, and they had to provide that for themselves. And eventually they get sick of it mm -hmm. and decide that they're going to create people in order to meet their needs. Mm. Now, see, the, so they are ordering the, the world of people around themselves because they have needs that people are to meet. And so religious practice in the ancient world was not doctrinal. It was not a theology. It was not systematic. It was not based on ethics or morals. It was based on the idea that the gods have needs and our job is to meet them. And if we meet the needs of the gods, they will we will have their favor they and will we will have us. their blessing. Okay. A transactional system. All right. I call it the great symbiosis. All right. So the gods protect and provide for the people and the people provide for the gods. Okay. And it's this codependent symbiotic system. And so in Egyptian and Mesopotamian ways of thinking, the gods ordered the world with that in mind, hmm. that symbiosis. Yahweh in the Old Testament says, I don't have needs. I'm providing food for you. You're not providing food for me. By the time you get to Psalms, it's, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you. <laughs> and so this idea that there's, there's something totally different going on in creation. But the key is, both in Genesis and in the rest of the ancient world, the focus is on order. They believe that something existed when it had a role and a purpose in an ordered system, not when it was a material object that you mm -hmm. could bump into. Mm -hmm. And if creation means to bring something into existence and order defines existence, then we find Genesis 1 is involved in ordering the world, which makes sense because day one is time, mm -hmm. day and night. Mm -hmm. Day two is the space that you live in. Day three is food's going to grow. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we see this, this focus on ordering the world. And one of the reasons we miss this is because we get to day seven and we as modern readers don't know what to do with it. We say, oh, so God was tired? I don't get that. You mm -hmm, know, what's this, mm -hmm. what's this God resting thing? Mm. You know, and uh, what we find out from the ancient world is that when gods rest, they rest in temples. Mm. And when they rest in temples, it doesn't mean they take a nap. It means that they sit on their throne. God rests on a throne. 
and he sits on a throne when he has brought order to his kingdom and now sits down to rule the kingdom. And we miss all of that. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. we read Genesis through our own cultural river, Genesis 1, and we think of seven days of material production. And then we start talking about evolution and Big Bang cosmology and the age of the earth, all material questions. Mm -hmm. So we think it's material. And then we get to day seven and we think it's an obsolete Jewish ritual. Mm. Whereas day seven is the climax of the entire account. God has finished ordering his world and has sat down on his throne to rule it. So now he's ruling. He's still ruling. Yep. We're still and in day seven. My father seven. is still working today. Right. Yeah. Right. So okay. when people say, what God do on day eight? Uh -huh. He ruled. Uh -huh. What do you do on day nine? He ruled. Uh -huh. <laughs> and he rules today. Okay. So do you think then many Christians today are trying to do something with Genesis 1 that the text was never intended for. Absolutely. So it's not there to tell us uh, how old the universe is. Correct. Uh, it's not there. We're not there to figure out how long the days were. Right. Okay. Uh, the, the, I have no trouble with the days being seven 24-hour days uh -huh. because once you start talking about it being uh, the ordering of the cosmos as a temple where God will take up his rest mm -hmm. to sustain and maintain an ordered cosmos. Mm -hmm. Then you look at temples and you find that temple inauguration ceremonies where God enters in and takes up his rest mm -hmm. on his throne mm -hmm. are seven day ceremonies. Mm. So the seven days has nothing to do with material manufacturing the seven days has to do with this inauguration dedication of the cosmos as sacred space where god's going to dwell mm -hmm. so when we leave our own cultural river behind and stop asking questions the text isn't addressing mm -hmm. we can start understanding what they're talking about in their world and get a much more theologically robust understanding of the passage do you think that since the israelites had just left egypt when Moses is writing Genesis 1, that in a certain sense, the Genesis 1 account is a polemic against the Egyptian account? I don't usually use the word polemic for it. They certainly are presenting a different opinion, a different okay. interpretation, uh -huh. a different idea. No question about it. But just because you're presenting a different idea doesn't mean you're trying to argue against someone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, every time I talk to somebody about the gospel, you could say, oh, he's polemicizing against uh, Islam. The Muslims, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, okay. no, I'm not. I'm just yeah, giving the yeah, truth as yeah, I understand yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So that could be, but that's not your point here. Uh, right. I don't okay. think so. Now, does Genesis 1, in your view, say anything about creation out of nothing? Or is that not part of the text, or you don't know? Well, creation out of nothing is a material question. Right. And if this is not a material account, uh -huh. it's not addressing a material question. Uh -huh. Now, I should footnote that. Uh, certainly, I believe that when God did create the material, uh -huh. he created it out of nothing. Right. So the philosophical issues of creation out of nothing are not a problem here. Mm -hmm. But see, I'm asking the story, I'm asking the question, what kind of story is Genesis 1? Mm -hmm. If it's not a material story, then creation out of nothing is a meaningless category. Right, for this question. For that question. Yeah, yes, okay. Okay, so a, a quick illustration. Uh -huh. um, so you are heading down to town to a play, and uh, traffic and everything's horrible. You get there late, and you walk in, and lights are just coming up for intermission. And you turn to the people around you, and you say, how did the play begin? Mm -hmm. And one person starts talking to you about when the script was written, and you mm -hmm. say, no, 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 mm -hmm. no. Another person starts talking about when the set was built. You mm -hmm. say, no, no, no. <laughs> Another person starts saying, well, the cast was chosen. No, no, mm -hmm. no. Okay, those are all good answers. They're all right answers. Mm -hmm. 
That's how the play began, but it's not the question you're asking. Right. So you finally say, what's happened since the curtain opened? Right. Okay? And it's the same thing when we look at, an, at a creation account. Mm -hmm. People have a particular question they're asking and answers they're giving. And you could give a material answer, but if they're not asking a material question, that's, mm -hmm. that's not on target. Again, mm -hmm. this is the question of our cultural river versus their cultural river. Now, which, which book or books, Dr. Walton, do you describe this in? So if people want to read more about this, where would they go? So The Lost World of Genesis 1 okay. is where lots of this began. Uh, then The Lost World of Adam and Eve okay. uh, carries it on and into Genesis 2 and 3. Got The Lost World of the Flood. And that picks up Genesis 4 through 11 with a focus right. on the flood. So it's in those kinds of books. That well, what, what is your view of the flood in terms of, you know, some say a universal flood mm -hmm. covered the whole earth. Others mm -hmm. say it's a localized flood that just covered the earth where human beings were. What, what, what's mm -hmm. your view of that? And you see, to some extent, we're also, again, asking the material question. Yeah. Uh, when we ask the geographical, uh, geological, uh -huh. uh, hydrological we're, right. we're asking our cultural river. Right. Okay. I want to ask what they're talking about. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, there's no question that at the end of chapter seven, there's a lot of universalistic language used. But we have to ask the question, is universalistic language uh, intended to be read in very strict ways or can it be rhetorical? We find numerous examples in the Bible where universalistic language is rhetorical. Hmm. For instance, uh, Genesis 41, 57 says, all the world came to Joseph for food. Hmm. That's rhetorical. Right. Nobody would think anything right. differently. Right. You know, people aren't rowing their canoes across the Atlantic. Right. You know? Hyperbolic language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. And um, in Zephaniah 1, a very interesting one, because it talks about all humankind will be destroyed. All birds and beasts under heaven will all be destroyed very similar to what mm. we have in the flood language, but it's talking about the destruction of Babylon, mm. of, of Jerusalem and mm. Israel. Mm. And we know everybody wasn't destroyed. We know right. all the birds and beasts weren't destroyed. Uh, so again, rhetorical language. In those two cases, rhetorical language is applied in cosmic cataclysmic contexts, mm. which of course the flood, cat uh, <laughs> that works with mm -hmm. the, the flood, that characterizes the flood. So what that does, it doesn't prove that Genesis 7's description of the flood, universalistic language, is rhetorical. It only shows that it could be. Hmm. Okay? And that puts another option on the table. Right. Okay. And if that option's on the table, and it's a viable, plausible option, then we can't say the Bible demands a universal flood. Mm -hmm. Okay? No, it might not mm -hmm. uh, if this language is rhetorical. So, if you believe the Bible, you have to believe a global flood. Well, no. There's another option on the table. Mm -hmm. So people who still want to think it's a global flood, fine, but don't say that the Bible leaves you no other options. Mm -hmm. And if you've got trouble scientifically with the thought of a global flood, there's another option that's mm -hmm. faithful to Scripture mm -hmm. that can give you another read. I'm asking you all of the, uh, the questions that people I know want answers to because these are the controversial mm -hmm. ones. How about the Nephilim? Yeah. So the sons of God, daughters of men in Genesis 6, and it talks about the Nephilim in those days. Here we only have a four-verse passage, mm -hmm. and therefore, boy, there's a lot that's not mm -hmm. very clear about it. And so the identification of who these sons of God are and who these Nephilim are, they're not necessarily the same, but uh, who they are uh, is a matter of a grave curiosity mm -hmm. as it's been over the centuries. Um, the, the information we get from Babylon can be helpful, 
they know of a group called the Apkalu, who were sent from the gods, sons of the gods, and they were sent to teach the arts of civilization to humankind. Hmm. And so they, they brought uh, that kind of wisdom uh, from God that would help humankind develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the Apkalu uh, become corrupt, and they marry human women, and uh, they, uh, instead of bringing order, they bring disorder. This comes out of Babylon, you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what's interesting, um, it's difficult to draw solid lines from Genesis 6 to the Apkalu, mm-hmm. but 3rd century BC, Book of Enoch, talks about a group called the Watchers. Yes. And the Book of Enoch is a retelling of the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 story, and the Book of Enoch has all the Apkalu traditions in it, mixed into that Mm -hmm. mix. So we can say that in 3rd century BC, Jewish traditions were connecting sons of God, Nephilim, Mm -hmm. with the Mm Apkalu. Whether that's a good connection, that's another question. But that's one that says, if we look at the ancient Near East, we can see a little bit different perspective on this text that gives us other options. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, here in America, going back to our, our cultural, probably fundamentalist, evangelical kind of uh, worldview, we tend to think generally that everything almost must be taken literally, I think, to our great disadvantage, as you're pointing out here. But the question still is, is this a story about a literal happening, or mm-hmm. is it some sort of metaphor for something else? Well, I I have some some ideas about literal interpretation. Mm -hmm. We have to treat it carefully. The Reformers treated it carefully. Augustine treated it carefully. Uh Literal reading doesn't mean that you ignore uh, rhetorical devices, like metaphor or things like that. So nobody goes to Psalms and says, God is my rock, and they ask sedimentary or metamorphic. (laughs) uh, Igneous? They're not... Does does, does Jesus have hinges? He's the door. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Uh uh, and and Jesus had had trouble with his audience with that. You know, Mm -hmm. you must be born again. Oh, I have to go back into the womb? (laughs) No, no, no. I'll give you different water. Oh, so I won't have to come to the well, (laughs) right? I mean, Jesus was doing this, and people were misunderstanding him. Uh Literal reading reading, according to all the way back, Augustine, through the Reformation, literal reading means reading it in its plain sense, that is, how the writer intended it Mm -hmm. to be read. Mm -hmm. And if the writer intended parable, it should be parable. If he intended metaphor, it should be metaphor. We're always accountable to the authors. That's my big hermeneutical thing. Mm. We're accountable to the authors. For authority to work, we have to be. Mm. And so as a result, we need to recognize whether they intended it rhetorically. Mm. Now, in the case of the flood, I I don't know. I know it's a possibility that mm. they did, and therefore that's an option in interpretation. But Meaning whether it was a universal flood or a local right, flood. Whether the universal language should be taken as uh, rhetorical uh-huh. or literal, that is, non-rhetorical, uh-huh. in, other, in order to avoid the word literal there. Uh, people talk at what I do with Genesis 1, and they say, oh, so you're not reading it literally. I said, well, I think I'm reading it exactly how they were writing it and understanding it, uh-huh. so I would call that literal. Okay. Okay? That's I don't feel saying. like I'm making something figurative that they did not intend as figurative. Right. Okay? Right. So our intention is to track with the authors, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to read it the way they wrote it. Mm-hmm. And again, for that, sometimes we have to knew, know more about rhetorical devices or genres or things like that 
in the ancient world. Do you think that the evidence that we have from other cultures that all seem to have a great flood story lends credence to the idea that there was a great flood, whether it was universal or local? Um, sure. That's a question. Sure. Yeah. It lends credence to the tradition of a massive destructive mm -hmm. flood, mm -hmm. cataclysmic. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. But see, the issue is not, well, so did the Bible borrow the story right, from the right. Babylonians, which is sometimes what people make the issue to be. That's right. not the issue. Everybody in the ancient world knew there was a flood. Right. The question is, how do you interpret it? Right. That is, what was happening? And when you read the Gilgamesh epic, for instance, and hear their explanation for why there was a flood, and compare that to Genesis, mm -hmm. and that explanation of why there was a flood, great differences. So they're talking about this same event, but they're interpreting it mm. very different mm. ways. And of course, here's the, here's the tricky part. Events are not inspired. The interpretation of the events is inspired because mm -hmm. it's the authors, it's the text. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not events that carry inspiration. All graphe is inspired. Right. It's text. Right. And so we're interested in the interpretations of those events mm -hmm. in the text. Mm -hmm. And since we're getting interpretations of somebody in an ancient world, an ancient cultural river, they are not thinking about giving us the information we need to reconstruct the event. We're supposed to just take on faith that there was such an event and mm -hmm. hear the interpretation of it because mm -hmm. that's where inspiration is. Now, I know that some scholars try and say there seems to be some sort of difference between the first 11 chapters of Genesis mm -hmm. and then 12 and on. Uh, do you see that difference? Is is 12 and on history where you've, you've heard some say, well, you know, Genesis 1 to 11 is some kind of mytho history, or mm -hmm. what's your view on that, Dr. My Walton? view is that our terminology and categories fail us. Okay. Um, and when we say history, uh, we have all kinds of ideas of what's entailed in that and right. what it involves, and, and they're from our modern cultural river. Okay. When people in the ancient world talked about the past and how you write about the past, they have very different ideas. They're mm. looking for different things in the past. They reflect the past in different ways, and therefore the word history is not helpful it, because it's apples and oranges mm -hmm. that we're dealing with. Okay, so I don't know that we can... can uh, approach it that way as to whether it's historical or not. But the same problem with myth. Um, what we call myth are things that we think are uh, fantastic make-believe stuff. Uh, for the Babylonians, what we call their mythology was the deepest reality that they knew. Mm -hmm. So we, we, can't, we can't use these terms so carelessly mm. that we mix ideas together in nonsensical ways. If we ask questions like, did they believe that Genesis 1 through 11 reflects real events in a real past? Mm. Just trying to avoid our, yeah, our right. category exactly. terms, right? Yeah. Uh, um, I would say that in one sense they did. But if you ask, did they believe that the Gilgamesh epic or Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation epic, reflect real events in the real past, they would probably say yes. The Babylonians, the Babylonians would yeah, say would yes. probably say yes. But I think what so. would the Hebrews say about that? Would well, they say ours is the proper account and theirs isn't? Well, the Israelites are trying to represent their reality uh -huh. uh, in ways that make sense to them. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly a reality. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it's the same thing as history, because mm -hmm. history is a term with modern confines and restrictions. Mm -hmm. So... When I look back at Genesis 1 through 11, 
I want to know what the author is doing with these events. They mm -hmm. are events. Mm -hmm. um, what is the author doing with them? And what's he trying to accomplish? Certainly Genesis 1 through 11 has a different quality to it in terms of its feel and its focus and mm -hmm. its subject matter than Genesis 12. It looks to me like Genesis 1 through 11 is trying to engage the thinking of the ancient world about what constitutes or what brings about order in the world. Okay, is being like God, does that bring about order? Does having family... Uh, does having legacy, does building cities, does becoming civilized, does becoming clothed, do, becoming farmers, mm. what constitutes order in the Israelite way of thinking? And they're picking up all of these ideas that people around them had. Just like Ecclesiastes picks up ideas that everybody right. around them had, right. wealth and pleasure. Mm -hmm. Just like Hebrews picks up ideas, you know, angels or law or Moses. And, and in each case, Hebrews, Ecclesiastes, and Genesis, where they're going is to say, nope, none of that works. What works, what matters is covenant. So Genesis 1 through 11 dumps you into covenant in Genesis 12. Mm -hmm. Ecclesiastes dumps you into when all is said and done, keep Torah. It's the covenant that matters. Mm -hmm. Hebrews goes through all of that. And what matters in the end? Jesus, the new covenant mm -hmm. is the way, right? So one after another, look at the options in, in your world. Consider them, um, but see their limitations and then understand it's the covenant that is the center of order. When you say see the options in your world, what do you mean by options? The, the options in the ancient world. Okay. Okay. So, but we, so we're still working in their cultural okay. river. All right, all right, right. Okay. So the Genesis authors, Ecclesiastes, mm -hmm. Kohelet, um, Hebrews, look at the options that people are considering in our day, whatever mm -hmm. that day mm -hmm. is in the various places. Mm -hmm. And uh, in each case, recognize the limitations, the inability for that to bring about true order, and then look to the one who brings true order, and that's Yahweh through his covenant. Mm -hmm. Now, the covenant in the Old Testament, uh, the covenant with Israel, many, of course, uh, Christians, just from a casual viewpoint, will say, well, they were they were saved by works. They had to obey the law. Why is that not the case, Dr. Walton? Well, that's not the case because they never even thought about being saved. Mm. They didn't have any concept of going to heaven to be mm. with God. They mm. didn't have any concept of going to hell and being punished. Mm -hmm. Everyone went to a bland another world. There was no reward or punishment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't even think about being saved from their mm. sins. There was nothing to be saved to. Mm -hmm. uh, they recognized they were sinners and they had the sacrificial system to keep God's sacred space pure, which is what that sacrificial system was about. Mm -hmm. Sacrifices are ex relationship exercises. And when they did something that would desecrate the temple and with the threat that God might leave, they wanted to purify it. And that's what the sacrifices did. So they weren't being saved from their sins and they didn't look to the Torah to save them from their sins. Mm. After what I've said in the, my previous comments, you can hear what they looked to the Torah for was that that described order in the covenant. Mm -mm. And so it wasn't anything about salvation. They, mm. were, they didn't even think about salvation. So what did Paul mean when he said that the gospel was preached to Abraham? 
well, Paul looks at the things that, that Abraham experiences, and he's translating them into his world, mm -hmm. into his conversations, into his issues, into his cultural river. Mm -hmm. And so he's dealing with a Jewish audience uh, that, that has those elements in their minds, and he's talking to that audience. Mm-hmm. So the gospel, he doesn't literally mean that Abraham was saved by faith, or... Oh, now that you used that word literally again. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> was, was it, when we get to heaven, will Abraham be there, and on what grounds, I guess, is the question. Well, I'm, I'm sure that if we need an explanation, God would give us one. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to think that if we're, if we're right in our Christian thinking, that the only ticket to heaven is, is Jesus mm -hmm. and his blood, mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have that. Right. And so, but yet on the same hand, I'm certainly not about to say that, so none of them will be in heaven, sorry, right, you know. Right. Um, so then we're left to our own devices to think up what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, Romans 3 talks about this, you know, that after that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. But then in verse 25 talks about how God was forbearing on the sins previously committed. Right. Okay. Right. Um, he passed which, over. Yeah. Which, yeah. <laughs> which gives you the sense that somehow... Uh, if I could use a analogical terminology, that their faithfulness to the Torah got them a voucher, that when Christ's blood was shed, mm -hmm. that voucher could be turned into a ticket. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> but I don't know. I'm making that up. You right, know, we, right. uh, on those kinds of things. I mean, I mean, can we take anything from uh, Enoch going to heaven or Elijah or the transfiguration, well, Moses and Elijah? Not too easily. Uh -huh. With Enoch, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Mm -hmm. Took him where? The question is where. Okay. Doesn't yeah. say. Yeah. And all they right. don't know. All right, all right. Okay. With Elijah, uh -huh. the chariot and the, the flames took him up mm -hmm. into Shemaim, into heaven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, they didn't think of that as him going to heaven to mm -hmm. be with God, mm -hmm. because when Elisha goes back and reports to the sons of the prophets, they say, well, we better go and find where God put him down. Mm -hmm. He took mm -hmm. him up into heaven, into mm -hmm. the skies, mm -hmm. right? And they presume he put him down somewhere, mm -hmm. but they don't know where. Right. Uh, it certainly doesn't, with Moses, no one knows where he's buried, but they don't have any idea about... So by the time you get to New Testament mm -hmm. and the Transfiguration... Mm -hmm. Well, ideas have come along quite a bit. Sure. Progressive so, revelation. Yeah. yeah all okay. of this development uh -huh. um, gives them a way to start uh -huh. speculating, pondering. So what do you think the ancient Hebrews thought by the time you get to the time of Daniel, and Daniel talks about the resurrection <laughs> in 12, what are they thinking about? I'm currently writing a commentary on Daniel, and um, I wish have, that there was someone here we could talk to who had some authority on this. Yeah, matter. yeah. <laughs> and so it's an ICOD commentary, and it's already a thousand pages. Uh -huh. And uh, I, I have some different ideas on chapter twelve. Okay. Um, I don't know if I can. Uh, you don't want to spill the beans just yet. Yeah, I'm. Uh -huh. uh, You're still working through it. Uh, I'm. I'm pretty settled All on right. the way I'm thinking about it, but what's What's interesting is that um, he talks about the, uh, the idea that the, the wicked will be somehow scandalized, reproach, and shame. Mm -hmm. It doesn't talk about punishment or judgment or fire. Mm -hmm. It talks about some will be this and some will be that. Um, it talks, Would, wouldn't shame be a punishment? Uh, shame or shame shame is relative to somebody's mm -hmm. way of thinking about yeah. them mm -hmm. reproach is how somebody thinks mm -hmm. about you and whereas the righteous the wise will be instructing others in righteousness which again is strange because if you're thinking about going to heaven how are they instructing others in righteousness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And so the idea that you're hearing it first here, <laughs> the idea <laughs> that, that I think makes sense of it is that he talks about they'll be um, like the, the stars of heaven. And he's not just talking about the individual stars. He's talking about the heavens and the constellations. Constellations tell stories. Mm -hmm. In Assyria, in Hellenistic Greek, even today, constellations tell stories. They tell stories of heroes. Mm -hmm. And they tell stories of villains. And as those stories are told, there is an eternal legacy for the righteous mm -hmm. who are remembered for their good and honorable deeds. Mm -hmm. And so they awake to eternal life as stories that are told generation after generation. Of course, you find them in Maccabees right away, mm -hmm. right? But then on and on, and we continue to read their stories. The villains, their villainy is their scandal, mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. reproached and mocked mm -hmm. century after century, generation after generation, and that's their legacy. And so like the stars in heaven, like the constellations, what is, what is this coming back to life that Isaiah 26 was talking about, that they will rise from the dust and they will awake? Mm -hmm. And I think Daniel's answer is they will awake to a legacy that will reflect their faith, and their heroism, mm -hmm. to stand up in their faith. Their stories will be told. So if I'm hearing you right, you're not saying they're literally going to be resurrected, but they will be thought of either in a good way or a bad way based on what they've done. So, yes. Okay. And in that way, Daniel has not yet gotten to the point of resurrection, mm -hmm. the way that it becomes an issue doctrinally, even in the Hellenistic period, because mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, Qumran starts thinking about those things. Mm -hmm. You see it in Maccabees, mm -hmm. um, you know, with this, the mother, the widow with the seven mm -hmm. sons. Um, and of course, you see it in the Pharisees and Sadducees are still arguing about it. So revelation, I'm sorry, resurrection mm. is still an idea in flux, mm. even in the mm. New Testament. Do you think, uh, Dr. Walton, that that is a way of looking at or maybe interpreting the shock that the disciples had when Jesus literally did rise from the dead? They did not anticipate that, did they? Uh, it was still an argument whether that kind of thing would happen. Right. You know, an argument among Jews. Right. That kind of thing yeah. would happen. So, yes. Yes, certainly they're, they're very surprised. <laughs> uh-huh. And they didn't think a man could claim to be God or would rise mm -hmm. from the dead in the middle of time. Right. And so, But again, even by that time, in first century, mm -hmm. he's already talking about rising from the dead, mm -hmm. you know, which is a different kind of term. Daniel doesn't really use that language. He uses Isaiah 26 language, mm. awake from sleep. Mm -hmm. Okay, and which, you know, in Isaiah 26 is controversial as well. Mm -hmm. Are there any other passages in the Old Testament that, uh, what about uh, the dry bones of Ezekiel? Well, is dry that... bones is the nation coming back to, okay. to vigorous mm -hmm. existence, mm -hmm. so it's not really the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So pretty much the Old Testament is only hinting at things. It's okay. not, it doesn't explicitly come out and talk about the afterlife uh, as we would like from right. our own cultural perspective right. or, or the, the, from, from the progressive revelation we have in the right. New Testament. They just don't have that information yet. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine when the martyrs are dying in, in Daniel, mm -hmm. you know, uh, reflected a, uh, reflecting the second century Antiochus mm -hmm. Epiphanes, when the martyrs are dying, people are saying, well, what's, what's Isaiah mean? How should we read Isaiah? Mm -hmm. How should we hope? How should we mm -hmm. 
formulate what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it looks to me like Daniel gives a different kind of answer than what eventually mm-hmm. develops. One more question, because uh, I don't want to keep you too long, but this is fascinating. Do you sense resurrection in Isaiah 53 when he says, I will, he will see the light of light or the light of life? I can't remember how yeah. it's exactly said there in the famous suffering servant passage. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't read resurrection into that. Okay. What um, would you think that it well, means? See, I think that, okay, cultural river of Isaiah 53. Mm-hmm. Again, Granted, New Testament identifies Jesus as fulfilling it as a suffering servant mm-hmm. in very particular ways. Mm-hmm. But how about Isaiah's audience? How would have they understood yeah, it? Yeah, right. How they would they didn't just shake their heads and say, oh, well, whatever. Yeah, um, right. And uh, so I've written an article on this um, and uh, about the, uh, the substitute king rituals in Assyria and Babylon. Okay. Uh, the idea is that when a negative omen was received, generally a lunar eclipse, uh, that suggested the king's life was in jeopardy. What they would do was have him step down from his throne, take off his crown, take off his robes, divest himself of the symbols of his authority, and hightail it to the suburbs, mm. hide out at a, at a farm, whatever. Mm, mm. And then they would pick some chump. <laughs> and they would put him on the throne, right. <laughs> give him the royal robes, full coronation, uh-huh. crown, robes, everything, mm-hmm. scepter, all of the... Uh, accoutrements of power, give him a consort, uh, a queen, the whole works. And for up to a hundred days, this stand-in would perform the royal rituals. Wouldn't make any decisions, of course, but would perform the royal rituals. And if he didn't die in a hundred days, they would execute him. And they would give him a full royal burial. And they were his consorts as well. <laughs> Sorry, lady. Um, you know, the, the, the whole, whole group, hmm. royal burial, buried, buried with the rich, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and in a real sense, he was considered as having died for the sins of the people. Mm. And this is right in Isaiah's time. This is his wheelhouse. Okay, right. You know, this is Assyria mm-hmm. at, at that time. And so this idea of a suffering servant... And Isaiah, it's not some chump, you know, who we considered nothing, who mm-hmm. we gave no esteem to, right? The mm-hmm. description, Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. you know, this is a nobody, right? okay? And, and he is, but you know, that's the kind of king we need. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of king that makes sense instead of all this pomp and circumstance that goes on in the royal courts. Mm-hmm. It's the suffering servant that actually is the better picture of the king. Mm-hmm. And he's no chump. He brought salvation for all of us. So you're saying that, if I'm understanding you right, that in Isaiah's time, Isaiah is using uh, something that might be familiar to people at that time. This is a custom that other other kings or other nations have yeah. used, right. and we're going to say that that's what's going to happen here. Except this is going to be the true savior. Well, savior, yes, in that uh-huh. sense, he's, he delivers us from our sins. Uh-huh. Um, again, it's not talking about sins theologically the way we think about uh-huh. them. Uh, in the Assyrian context, it would have been the offenses that got the gods angry, whatever that was. Okay. You know, right. They wouldn't know. Uh-huh. Um, but the gods are angry about something, you uh-huh. know, so give them somebody to hit. Uh-huh. You know? uh-huh. that's, that would be the idea. And so that would have been familiar to them. Right. It's in their cultural river. Got it. Okay. And so they would have heard it that way. All right. Okay, but again, New Testament is going to say, oh, there's a lot more to it. And, That's right. Look at Jesus. God is using that yeah. cultural sure. reference back there yeah. to apply now, yeah. 700 years later, yeah. to the real Savior. Uh-huh. Fascinating stuff. 
Dr. Walton, where can people find out more about you? Do you have a website, places you blog, places you have articles up? Where can they go? I just have my Wheaton College website. Okay. And they can find things that I've written there. Of course, you can right. go on Amazon and find all the books I've written. And, okay. What's uh, your newest book? Um, the I've got a book just ready to come out mm -hmm. uh, called Wisdom for Faithful Reading. Okay. Uh, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation. Okay, very good. it talks about all of this idea of being accountable to the authors and what that means. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to do that consistently, consistently, what are some of the ways that we have to change how we read the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. So it has examples from Daniel. It has examples from Genesis. It, it deals with lots of these it's issues. The same example we just talked about from Isaiah 53 um, in there? It might have that one. Okay. It might, yeah. Yeah, I forget what I've written too. Yeah. <laughs> Did I put that I in there? Forget I, it. I mean, it, it has <laughs> dozens and dozens of examples. So, would, would that be the best book to get for our viewers or listeners who want to better understand about how to interpret the Old Testament? Yes. That would be the, would. the new one? Yeah. And again, um, it's called? Uh, Wisdom for Faithful Reading. Wisdom for Faithful Reading. Okay. Now, another one that maybe comes out different, slightly different angle. Uh -huh. I have a book called Old Testament Theology for Christians. Okay. And that's another place where they can get some of my methodology, but it deals with things like afterlife and salvation. Okay. And things of that sort. Okay, good, good. Well, outstanding. Thanks for being on the program. Sure. All right, folks, thanks for being a part of the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist bonus pod podcast. Check out Dr. John Walton. They're at the Wheaton website, or just Google him. You'll find his books. Thanks for being here. See you next week.